Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark 6? We're going to wrap up uh, Mark 6 today. Not the gospel, certainly, because there's 16 chapters, but we'll finish Mark chapter 6 uh, this morning, uh, verses 45 to 56. Uh, last week, if you were here by way of reminder, uh, was a context of uh, large relational needs, masses of people, large relational needs, large physical needs, hunger, physical needs, and large emotional needs. It was the famous story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Mark says it was 5,000 men. Scholars tell us it was likely uh, 15 to 20,000 people total that day. And one of the things that we spent some time uh, thinking about last week was that Jesus, in his compassion and in his power, meeting those uh, those hunger needs to feed the people, but also meeting their emotional and their relational needs. If you remember, uh, he turned them into uh, communities, smaller communities of 50 to 100, helping people find places uh, of connection. The reason why I wanted to remind you of these things is because uh, our text today is uh, intricately linked together with the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And so uh, these two stories really need to be understood and read kind of together. We've separated uh, the, the narrative in two Sundays, but they really do need to be understood together. There's a, there's a difference, though, in terms of where the need was coming from, uh, from last week to this week. Last week, the need was the masses of people, the masses of people that ran ahead of Jesus and his disciples who were seeking to go get some respite and some solitude and some retreat, and they, they were there ahead of them. And so the, the need last week was of the masses of the people. The need this week is in the disciples themselves. Uh, they are the ones that are in need of compassion and the power of Jesus. They were uh, struggling. They were struggling again. They're disciples. We've, they're followers of Jesus. We've talked about this over and over in the series that discipleship is a process. Uh, and these disciples were struggling again. And they were stuck again. And they were afraid and battling some anxiety again. They were afraid again. Sound like anyone you know, perhaps? Um, and while it seemed like, it seemed like Jesus wasn't with them in that place of being stuck, in that place of struggle, in that place of anxiety, when it seemed like Jesus wasn't with them, he actually uh, was watching them and coming for them all along. I wanna just begin by reading the first couple of verses in the story Verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Remember, they go on a boat to have this retreat. All the masses are there feeding up the 5,000. Jesus wants him to get back in the boat now after that story has taken place, after everyone had ate their fill and they were satisfied and the disciples even had 12 basket full of leftovers. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he remained back and dismissed the crowd. So they're gonna get in the boat and they're gonna leave the scene and they're gonna go to a town called Bethsaida, which is kind of on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. So you can see the mark there where Bethsaida is. So that's where they're heading, but Jesus is gonna stay back. He's gonna stay back. He dismisses the crowd and after he had taken leave of them, after Jesus had taken leave of the disciples and all the crowd had been dismissed, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. 
disciples, they get into their boat. They begin to head for Bethsaida. Jesus heads for solitude. And the disciples, as they're going where Jesus told them to go, they're operating in obedience. They get in the boat and they are rowing toward Bethsaida. They begin to experience another ordeal on the Sea of Galilee. They are fighting wind. They are fighting waves. They're doing what Jesus has told them to do, but doing what Jesus told them to do simply is pretty hard. Anybody ever feel that before? What Jesus has called me to do, what he's, he's calling me up to do, obedience was hard. It wasn't easy. And they're fighting against some resistance. I think it's really helpful for us as disciples ourselves to look at this passage and to think about and process this passage through the perspective of the disciples, working, rowing hard, but getting nowhere. Facing adversity, distress perhaps, perhaps even frustrated, feeling separated from Jesus while they're working so hard doing what Jesus told them to do, but they're not making any progress. Now, what, what they were facing in this particular story uh, isn't the same as what they were facing in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 was this huge gale, and they were literally afraid for their lives. It wasn't quite that intense, but it was still pretty frustrating. Verse 47, it says that when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. And Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So uh, they're, they're not... They're not uh, in peril of their lives, but it's just this frustrating reality of doing what God told them to do, but they're not making any headway. And I, I assume, I don't know this to be true, I, but I assume and think that this might be some of the conversation that could have been happening in the boat that particular night was they are out there and Jesus is alone on the land. Perhaps there was conversation like, this is really frustrating that we're out here in the middle of the lake and we're working so hard to get where Jesus told us to go. This is what he told us to do and we can't get there. We're, we aren't going anywhere. And by the way, where is he anyways? Why did he put us in the boat and he stayed back, right? Can you imagine that must have been some of the conversation perhaps that they were having? Why, why do I think that perhaps could be what they were thinking? Maybe it's because of what I've thought and said in my life, maybe Maybe you could relate in some way. This is frustrating. I'm working and I'm doing, I'm doing what God has told me to do. And it's not going very well. And it's not that easy. I've been reading and studying and learning and I've been doing this or that and I'm just not making headway or I'm, I'm pursuing reconciliation like I, I, God's told me to pursue reconciliation in this broken relationship in my, wife, in, in my life and it's actually getting worse than it was before. I started this ministry in my neighborhood or in my school. No one told me this was gonna be this hard and I was gonna face this kind of resistance or this kind of Rejection. I'm, I'm getting some counseling to overcome some things that keep me stuck in my life. I'm doing what God has told me to do, but I'm not making any progress. Anyone ever been there before? You don't have to raise your hands. Why am I even doing this? I thought this is what God told me to do. By, by the way, where is he anyways? 
I want to emphasize this statement again as we consider this story through the lens of the disciples. They were feeling separated from Jesus. But even though they couldn't see Jesus in their predicament, in their struggle against the wind and the waves, Jesus was always watching them from the land. He was privy to everything that they were facing. Even though they didn't know that Jesus was even coming for them in their hour of need in the darkness, he was on the way. This is about the fourth watch of the night, verse 48, which is between like 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. By the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them. He, he saw them. He saw what they were going through. And then he was coming to help them in the midst of what they were going through. And he was walking on the sea or walking on the water. No big, no big deal. No big deal. Just kind of stroll on the water to the disciples. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. I can only imagine this scene is my uh, brother-in-law, JD, Lindsay's brother, he has this thing where he just likes to hide behind doors and things and like scare the the mess out of people and he posts it online. He does it as work. He does it with his wife. She always hits him when he does it. His daughter, he does it everywhere. It's hilarious. He posts it all on Instagram. I'll give you his account. You can follow him. You'll laugh. It's all good. But when he does it, what do people do? Ah! It's just this, God. It's like when your little sister or big brother, whoever it was when you were little, was hiding behind the door and you come, like, ha! You know, it's like that's, I think, what they were feeling out there in the middle of the lake when they see Jesus walking on the water, but they thought it was a ghost. They're terrified. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart. He doesn't say, lose heart. He says, take heart. Take heart in your fear. Take heart where you're stuck. Take heart where you're struggling. Take heart in your anxiety. Take heart in the unknown. Take heart in the midst of your frustration and doing what I have told you to do. And I know that it's hard and I see you and I'm coming to you. Take heart for it is I. Do not be afraid. I'm here with you. You are safe with me. This reminds me of C.S. Lewis's kind of epic tale, The Chronicles of Narnia. The Chronic, what calls of Narnia? Anyone? 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 Thank you. Thank you. Saturday Night Live, old skit. Anyway, C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, the Christ figure in the story is a lion, and his name is Aslan, right? You know the story. In the book, The Horse and His Boy, there's seven books in the Chronicle. And in the book, the horse and his boy, Aslan, appears from over the sea without warning, but exactly when he was needed. And as C.S. Lewis writes it in the story, Aslan was among them, though no one had seen him coming. No one had seen him coming. They felt separated, but he was watching them, and he was coming to them all along. It was the fourth watch of the night, 
Jesus sees their adversity. He comes to them by walking on the water. Just a little fourth night watch, walk on the water, stroll, walking on the water. No big deal. No big deal. I think to understand, I think sometimes these stories, they become so familiar to us. And we go, oh, yeah, feeding the 5,000. Oh, yeah, Jesus walking on the water. Oh, yeah, and then the next story. And I think we miss oftentimes the deep theological significance of what some of these stories teach us about God, about Jesus, about life, about who we are in him and life in him. And so I wanna spend a little time pausing in the story because it's gonna be important for us to have a more robust understanding of this really familiar passage if we unpack a few Old Testament passages that'll help us understand and have a wider view and a much greater understanding of what Jesus is doing here. The first passage that I want to point out is um, Isaiah 43. It's a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Isaiah 43, verse two, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Not if, not if you pass through the waters, but when, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Verse 15, I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. Thus says the Lord, who makes, who makes a way in the sea, a path, a path in the mighty waters. Jesus meant to pass by them. He's making a path on the sea in fulfillment of the messianic prophecy from Isaiah 43 in the mighty waters. And so when Jesus sees them and comes to them by walking on the water, this, this supernatural miracle, he is making evident to the disciples once again his unlimited power as God in the flesh. We see... Uh, Throughout scripture in the Old Testament and the New, it's known as an epiphany. And an, an, uh, an epiphany is when someone like us uh, gets an opportunity to experience a divine presence uh, in the here and now. And uh, what's happening in this story is exactly that. It's a divine epiphany. It's a divine revelation. Jesus isn't standing on the land anymore. He is literally standing on top of the water. And so when it says in verse 48, he meant to pass by them, it's like, what does that mean? Because I remember when I was reading this just in the last couple of weeks and looking at that, it's like, he's, is Jesus like playing games with the disciples? Like, I meant to pass by you so that you didn't see me, right? He's, it's like, is he playing tricks? Is he playing games? It's just like hide and seek. And that's not what's happening here at all. He meant to pass by them on purpose so that they would understand more fully his divinity. And there's two Old Testament passages that have the same verb to pass by in them as translated in Mark chapter six. And so it's helpful for us to know uh, where these places are. One is in Exodus 33 and 34, this idea of passing by. It's the story of Moses on Mount Sinai. And Moses was asking the Lord, Yahweh, to show him his glory. And in verse 18 and 19, it says this in Exodus 33. Moses said, please show me your glory. And Yahweh said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will make all my goodness pass before you 
That's the first place in the Old Testament. The second place is in an interaction with the Old Testament prophet Elijah. It's in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. What, what is happening in Mark 6, verse 48, when the disciples are stuck and they're frustrated and they're not making any headway and Jesus walking on the water means to pass by them. It means that he, Jesus, is helping them see his transcendent majesty as the Lord of glory. He is given, giving them an epiphany of his divinity. He is helping them understand more fully that Jesus is more than just his humanity, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is giving them a divine revelation that he is the creator of the universe. He meant to pass by them so that they could see beyond his humanity to see into the fullness of his being, which is also his divinity. And here's what's so incredible in this passage as we compare Mark chapter 6 to Exodus 33. If we think back to what happened in Exodus 33 in the story of Moses, Moses was not allowed to see God's face. In the text, it says, uh, God had told Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. While my glory passes by, I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Jesus, the Messiah, has come. There is a more full revelation to the reality of who God is in Jesus, the Savior of the world, because in Jesus, in Mark chapter 6, the disciples are enabled to see more of the glory of God in Jesus. Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God, and the glory of his divinity is right in front of them. Do you remember if you think back to the story in Mark chapter four, when they were afraid for their lives and Jesus calms the storm with a word and everything is still. There was a huge question in Mark four that the disciples were asking of themselves and this is it. Who is this? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And here is the answer. He is the Lord of glory. He is fully human and he is fully divine. He is the creator of the world. Jesus is allowing his disciples a glimpse of his divinity in order to help them see who he fully is, yes, fully human, yes, God in the flesh, fully human to pay, to pay the wage of our sin, to fully as a human atone for the sins of the world on the cross so that we, when we believe in him and receive his forgiveness and his resurrection, we are forever liberated. We are forever forgiven, radically forgiven and set free and have eternal life. Yes, fully human, but also fully divine. He raised up from the dead three days later. This is Jesus. 
This is who we worship. This is who we follow. And in the story, they were terrified. Because when you, when you are in the presence of the holiness of God, you are on your face. You are on your face. Holy fear in the presence of God himself. They thought Jesus to be a ghost, which he wasn't. They thought him to be a ghost, and he just simply said, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 51, and he got into the boat with them. So let's just track this for just a minute in the story. He's on the land. They're stuck. They're feeling anxious. They're, they're, they're doing what God has told them to do. It's not going very well. They're frustrated. Jesus sees them. The next thing that the text says is that Jesus comes to them. And now he's there and he gets in the boat with them. The presence of God with the disciples right in the boat. He gets in the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. Stories connected, feeding of 5,000, five loaves, two fish. They were like, they did not understand about the loaves. It says their hearts were hardened. What did they not understand about the loaves? He had taken five loaves and two fish and multiplied it to feed multi-thousands people. What were they not grabbing? They weren't grabbing the fullness of his divinity. Their hearts were hardened. This doesn't mean that their hearts were against him. It was, they weren't hostile. They just didn't fully understand. They were confused. They were still confused about the full reality of who Jesus is. They didn't understand yet about the loaves. Verse 53, to wrap the story, they had crossed over and they came to land at Gesenaret. Now, this is, they were going up on the north side originally to Bethsaida. Maybe it was because of the wind. I don't really know. Uh, it doesn't really say, but they don't end up in Bethsaida. They end up uh, on the shore, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they moored to the shore, and they got out of the boat, and the people immediately recognized him. They recognized Jesus. And they ran about the whole region, and they began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, wherever Jesus went, wherever he came, it was villages, it was, country, it was cities, it was countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces. And they implored Jesus that he might even, that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, as many as touched it were made well. Jesus gets into the boat with them on the sea. They don't end up in Bethsaida. On the north end, they end up on the western shore and where Jesus' immense popularity is seen clearly. And what we see there are the mighty works of God on display as people are coming to Jesus in faith. And we see the mighty works of God. Certainly, we see his humanity. He was there with them. He was in their presence. He was in their marketplaces. He was in their cities. He was in their countrysides. He was in their homes. He was walking along their paths. We see his humanity on display. He was where the people were. He was with them. He was ministering to them. But we also see his divinity on display. Feeding of the 5,000, walking on the water. Everyone that touched his garment was made well. 
Here's where I want to pause and give you what I would call essential, not I, in any, anyone that uh, understands and needs people to understand this essential Christian uh, teaching or essential Christian orthodoxy. Because I believe this is really uh, what Mark is trying to help us understand in the passage last week and this week, and it's this. This is what, this is what we need to, to think about and consider uh, about who Jesus really is. In theological language, it's called the hypostatic union. And the meaning of hypostatic union is, honestly, it's much easier than it sounds, but the concept is as profound as anything in Christian theology. I can't overemphasize uh, this enough in terms of our faith in Jesus. Uh, the English word, the English adjective that's hypostatic comes from the Greek word hypostasis, which means sameness or oneness. And the word hypostasis uh, occurs four times in the New Testament. And I wanna show you uh, one place, for the sake of time, we won't unpack all four, but in Hebrews 1.3, here's what the author of Hebrews says, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint or the hypostasis, the exact imprint of his nature, of the nature of God himself. So here the author of Hebrews uses the word in reference to the sameness or the oneness that Jesus has with the Father. Both the Father and the Son are, are of the same nature. There is an exact imprint. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. And so in Jesus, the hypostatic union is simply this. It's one nature, God, and two persons. Two persons, fully God, fully human, one person, Jesus, the hypostatic union. I, I really see and understand and think that this is really what Mark is trying to get across to us in these miracle stories in Mark chapter six. Jesus is fully human. Jesus is fully God. In his humanity, who came to be one of us, to rescue us, to redeem us, unlimited, unlimited in his compassion, unlimited in his mercy, unlimited in his love, unlimited in his grace for people, but also fully divine, the Lord of glory, the creator and the savior of the world, unlimited in his power to heal and to bring freedom and hope to the lives of people. This is what I think is the the crux of what Mark is wanting us to understand because it's what I see the disciples learning from Jesus, this epiphany. They needed to understand more fully who Jesus was in his divinity. I, I said this earlier, I wanna close with this, that I thought it would be helpful for us to understand this narrative uh, through the lens of the disciples uh, and so I wanna close our time with just a couple of more thoughts on this and thinking about what had happened in last week's story and this week's story, it's really all the same happening at the same time. The first thing I wanna point out and invite you to consider is this, Jesus clearly, clearly, clearly cares so deeply for his disciples. We've kind of drawn the string in today's story with this. He sees them in their distress. And he comes to them in their darkness and in their struggle and in their frustration. And he gets in the boat with them. And he says, 
take heart, I am with you. Don't be afraid. Clearly cares for his disciples. Can you, can you consider, can you believe, can you, can you think about, process, pray through, engage with, this reality is true for you as well. He sees you, he has come for you and he is with you in, in your darkness, in your struggle, in your frustration. Maybe, maybe you don't feel him. Maybe you feel separated from him. I think the disciples certainly felt separated from him, but they were never separated from him. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. He is always, always with us. He, he sings over us as we sleep at night. He has never forsaken us. He has never left us. He sees you. He comes to you. He is with you. He is, his presence is with you, even in this moment. Uh, Peter says these words to us to encourage and strengthen us in his letter, 2 Peter chapter three, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance, for everyone to come to know that he sees you, that he's come for you, and that he is with you. Secondly and lastly this morning, Jesus never gives up on his disciples in spite of their failure. He never gives up on them. We see no rebuke in their hardness of heart in this story. They just didn't fully understand. There was no rebuke in the story. There was no condemnation of their, of their inability to fully understand what was going on. What we see in the story is patience and kindness. He doesn't condemn them for their natural human bent and their inability to grasp the, the literal mind-boggling reality that, that, that the creator of the universe, that God himself, a divine epiphany is happening right in front of their eyes. There's no rebuke, there's no condemnation, there's only a word of encouragement. Take heart, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. Psalm 103, eight, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. Jesus never gives up on his disciples in spite of their failures. Jesus never gives up on you in spite of your failures. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in compassion and abounding in love. This is, this is the good news of the gospel. This is how we are strengthened when we feel stuck, when we feel frustrated. We're doing what you told us to do. Where are you? Take heart. Take heart. I'm here. I'm here with you. I've never left you, and I never will. One of the commentators that I read this week had this to say, and I thought it was quite powerful, so I just wanna quote this as our conclusion together this morning. Faint hearts, faint hearts. How do we get faint-hearted when life is hard, when life isn't going the way we thought it would go, when my, ex, when my expectations of God, when, when they're not met, when, when I'm struggling, when tragedy comes, fill in the blank, right? When I'm doubting, 
Faint hearts begin to wonder whether the Lord has abandoned them to their fate or to doubt the reality that Jesus is the Christ. We are to learn from this story that we are never forsaken, that the Lord watches over us unseen and that he comes for our salvation, even even though, even though we may feel separated, even though it may be the fourth watch of the night, you are never forsaken. You have the Lord watching over you unseen. And you, you have been one that Jesus has come to for your salvation. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Lord, help us understand the fullness, the fullness of who you are, fully human and fully divine. One of us, one of us, yet also the Lord of glory and the creator of the universe. Imminent, imminent with us compassionate with us, yet also transcendent, the holy Lord of glory. So may we be so grateful that you have come for us, Jesus, and may we be in awe of your holiness, that you love us, that you see us, that you come to us, and that you are with us. May we take heart today. I pray for anyone in this room that may be losing heart. And I pray that your word, that is power, that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, would help anyone and everyone in this room to take heart. Awaken us, Lord. Awaken us to your full humanity and your full divinity. We worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.